0: Fellowship, this is going to go bad. I learned this from Greg. Yeah, exactly. Uh, My name is Neil Payne. I'm going to do the best I can this morning to talk through uh, James 2, 14 through 17. But before we do that, if you haven't noticed, uh, we pray a lot and we're unashamed of that. So we're going to open the morning uh, with a little bit of prayer, I guess continue the morning in a little bit of prayer. For a local church, as well as an unreached people group. Man, that looks good. I love it. Um, So, as we pray, you guys can go ahead and either write this down or or digest this information. We're going to pray for Fellowship Bible Church, uh, lead pastor Travis Chappelle and his wife, Kayla, and their two girls, as well as an unreached people group, uh, the Nagarachi of Bangladesh and India, 14,200 people, 0.00% Christian. So... Uh, We are going to go to the Lord in prayer for that. Father God, just thank you so much for who you are, God. Thank you so much that you're a good, good Father. Thank you for uh, what you've done for us. You've given us this beautiful sanctuary to worship in, Father. Um, We just praise you. God, we ask that you do the same for Fellowship Bible Church. Just down the road here, God, on 2101, Uh, we know you're there this morning, God. God, speak through Travis as he's bringing your word, God. But first and foremost, speak through his marriage with Kayla. Let the outpouring of that love go into the church. God, be with the two girls that he has, Father. Just help Crosspoint Fellowship know how we can go alongside of Fellowship Bible Church um, and enjoy you uh, with them, God. God, i like to pray for an unreached people group, God, the Nagarachi people. Father, at this point, they don't know you, God, but we ask this morning that you give them one God, that you just give them one and that one turn into two that love you and that two turn into three that love you, God. Whether that be they meet a traveler, Father, that knows you who's showing glory to you and win them over, Father, or whether that be someone inside their tribes, God, we know that they'll be represented in your time, God. Uh, We know that you'll bring every nation to you, God, and so we know that the Nagarachi people will be there, but we're asking for that today. God, we're asking today, God, raise up somebody to either go there from this body Maybe from Fellowship Bible Church, maybe from somewhere else in Greenville, or maybe from another church in China, God. But just send somebody to the Nagarachi um, Nation, Father. God, we pray for VBS. That's coming up, God. Um, We pray for the workers. We pray pray for those that are getting VBS ready, God. We ask that you start preparing the hearts of the kids that are going to be at VBS. God, help us to go alongside of our young people um, and show your glory to them. God, thank you so much for baptism and the walkers uh, professing that faith. God, it's such a joy. Uh, Teach us how to go alongside the walkers in this faith journey um, that we'll be even talking about this morning. God, and lastly, uh, be with me as uh, I do my best to herald your word, Father. God, we love you. We love you. We love you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So uh, this morning, first of all, I feel like I have to explain a few things. Um, when I get nervous or excited or anything like that, like I'm a mover, I move all the time, I'm super active. If you came over to my house, my wife would definitely tell you this, I get like a phone call and the first thing I start doing is pacing and so I like run all around our house, there's a trail on our carpet where I walk and so that's just what I do. So if that bothers you, I'm very sorry, that's just how I deal with emotions but mainly I'm very sorry to the media team who probably has like followed me around with the camera all morning long. It's a high likelihood I'll even probably fall in the baptismal at some point, and that'll just be funny. But the verses we're talking about this morning are James 2, 14 through 17, and these are by far the easiest verses in the Bible to understand. Obviously, I'm being completely facetious. Uh, These verses have have actually caused denominational splits all throughout our church history, like 1,970 years worth of people thinking this means different things than what it actually means, or, or, well, I believe this about it, or I believe that about it. Martin Luther himself called James the epistle of straw because of these very verses in his, I think it was uh, let me uh, his 1522 German Bible. But in his 1537 Bible, he actually redacted those comments. So we got Martin Luther back, hopefully. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, this is a very, very, very tough series of ver- verses. So I want to handle it very carefully. So, also, if you're anything like me, you like a good order. This morning is going to be very ordered. I, I, I am an outlined just freak, so everything I have is an outline. So the first thing we're going to do is we're actually just going to read the passage. The next thing we're going to do is we're actually going to climb into the culture of James. We're going to figure out who the people of James are and just kind of do a flyby of what it looks like to live in the time period of James. And then we're going to reread the text in the light of that. We're going to reread the text in light of that time period. And then we're going to spend a vast majority of the, uh, the morning in application. So there's two ways to go about these verses. We could have talked about it in like, a, like an apologistic manner, like uh, I, we all could have become the best apologist on the planet at these verses. You could prove that these verses, what they mean and what they know, or we could take it very applicable. And James is a very applicable and practical book. So I figured, let's just follow James. Might as well. And then the last thing that we'll do is have the supper. So if you're a very tidy person or you take notes, that's what I would go with. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be in James 2, 14 through 17. If any, ooh, sorry. Let's start over. 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says, He has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Here's where we crawl back in time a little bit. And Jason and Morris did this quite well, so I'm not going to go in depth or anything like that. I'm just gonna kind of uh, fly by it so we can crawl into the story of James. And the way I'm gonna do that is a timeline. Yes, I am a history nerd, so I talk in timelines. I hope that's okay. There's a lot. If you can't even read the words up there, that's totally fine, we're gonna talk about them. But I have a laser pointer, so it's gonna be exciting. I put Jesus' birth up there. That's very important. I put Jesus' death and resurrection. Also extremely important. So I do have to preface this that obviously these dates are somewhat uh, debated, but for the most part, this is the normalized dates that historians think. Other important. Stephen was martyred, 34 A.D. Very important. First deacon, he was martyred. James was written in about mid-40s. We'll call it 45 A.D. So the book of James was written in 45 A.D., 57, Paul meets up with James in Jerusalem. That's very important because James and Peter were actually the leadership of the Jerusalem church. So Paul made an appearance. Uh, We see that in Acts 15. Then 62 AD, not too too long after that, James was martyred. The very person that wrote this book was martyred. So there's martyr number two. Uh, Just after that, Peter and Paul martyred 64 to 68 AD. It's not a good time to be a Christian, right? Uh, And then just to make this very, very real, to make sure that you know that this is a real book authored by a real person, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written to very, very real people, I like to put normal things in history that you might know. So 70 AD, the Colosseum was started. It was started by Vespasian. It was finished in 80 AD by Titus. Many of you here today who have ever been to Rome have even seen the Colosseum. It's there, it's real. The Colosseum was there. We know what happened at the Colosseum, right? We all saw the movie Gladiator. Russell Crowe fought in the Colosseum. I'm pretty sure. I'm almost positive of it. But what also happened in the Colosseum was Christians were actually martyred there. They were persecuted there. They would be put in the arena with other types of lions or tigers or to fight other Christians or to fight Roman soldiers. And so it was not a great time to be a Christian when it comes to persecution, The last thing that I put on there was John dies on the island of Patmos. Now, John, that wrote John, actually was the only one of the apostles that didn't get martyred. I mean, he was exiled on an island, but at least he made it out. Everybody else kind of got martyred. So again, a tough time. You might have heard of a guy named Nero. I put the the rulers, I'm not sure if you guys can see it, but I put the rulers of the time. Nero was actually like the number one persecutor of Christians. He was not a good guy to run into with in a dark alley. So um, all I'd say, it was really tough to be a Christian at that time. Folks were actively getting persecuted. So what I kind of want to get across there is just that James is writing to a people that we might can kind of see like, oh, these people are just not doing great things. Maybe they're just kind of like On their own or maybe they're tied up in social media or whatever I don't know what things that are going on but the people in James both Christians and I guess all Christians both Gentiles and Jews that became Christians were getting persecuted but in James 1 chapter 1 and chapter 2 we see that we're that James is talking to a people that are broken up into groups fighting they have fallen into worldly lifestyles they have failed to put their faith into practice And as a result, they became double-minded. They were worshiping God when it was very, very convenient, but whenever it wasn't, they were worshiping worldly things or they were just sliding under the radar. You can understand how they might be doing that if they're getting so heavily persecuted, right? So I don't want to see, or like I don't want to put off the idea that the people James are writing to are bad at all because they have kind of a good reason to be double-minded. Not saying it's right. Just saying we completely understand. So the next thing that I kind of wanted to t- talk about at James, specifically these verses right here, it's called Hellenistic rhetoric is the style that this verse is written, written in. And if you hear the word Hellenistic, don't freak out about that. Helena is just a Greek word that means Greek. So we're talking about basically a Greek style, a Greek writing style. And it's you see this Paul uses this all the time. James uses it a couple times. It's this dialogue between, uh, like maybe a conversation between the, between the author and to someone fake. Like, uh, suppose this happened, right? That's kind of the style that's written here. So James is having a conversation with someone that he's just basically calling X, Like say I'm talking to X and whenever I was reading this, I gave gave this fake person a name, I called him Bartimus. I don't know any Bartimuses and it sounds super like Greek Roman to me, so I went with it. So let's say James is talking to Bartimus and James wrote this conversation down because James has had this conversation over and over and over and over again. James is not writing a letter to a whole group of people just because he had a conversation one time with one random guy. Okay, this is a conversation that has occurred over and over and over again. And I kind of see it like this. I kind of see James walking to the gym with his buddy Bartimus saying, hey man, like I've heard you say you have faith, but your faith is an absolute joke. Dude, I don't see you doing anything about what you say you believe. And so that's kind of the style that James is actually writing in. So before... And I have one more setup. Before we actually start digging into what James is saying, uh, I want to make this very, very, very clear. A lot of times you hear even, even theologians talk about how this might contradict something that Paul says. And we'll see this morning that that is not the case whatsoever. The same Holy Spirit that inspired the writing of James also inspired the writing of Paul. The same exact Holy Spirit. Now, it was inspiring two different people. They used different words, different meanings, different things like that, but it was the same exact Holy Spirit. So we can trust that this does not contradict anything else in our Bible whatsoever. So to go on this journey, we have a lot of biased ideas of what we think words mean. That's just, I mean, that's, that's, we come into it saying, well, we've studied a lot of the Bible, so I know that this word means this, and this word means that, and so on and so forth. And while that's not wrong at all, sometimes it can kind of lead us astray a little bit. So the best way to define words in James specifically is to use what James says about those words. I mean, it's definitely rocket surgery if, uh, you know, Ben would say something like that. But first thing that we're going to do is talk about faith. We're just going to define the word faith, but we're going to define faith using James, specifically chapters 1 and 2, because we're familiar with James 1 and 2. So chapter 1, verse 3 says, Faith perseveres through trials and embraces trials in ways that will conform us to Jesus' character. And in verse 6, it says, Faith is the opposite of wavering in loyalty to Jesus. Faith involves single-minded devotion in Him. Chapter 2, verse 1 talks about faith in Jesus excludes partiality or favoritism, specifically when it's talking about the rich versus the poor. Chapter two, it also talks about the way faith works out as neighborly love by showing mercy to others because of the mercy that we received in Jesus. You see, in summary, faith is the absolute dependence on Christ. The absolute dependence brings transformative union with Jesus that compels us to act in accordance with his will, to act in accordance with his kingdom, and to act in in accordance to the way that he treats us. So that's kind of what faith is defined as in James. Now let's do a quick fly-by summary like that of works. What does works mean in James? And what you'll see, and this is on purpose, is the two look a little bit alike. So in James 2, 1 through 13 that we discussed last week, it says works shows no partiality. No, no other word, words pay attention to, oh, sorry, in other words, pay attention to the needy. That's what it's saying. It shows no partiality, so pay attention to the needy. Serve the needy just as you would the rich. It says to love your neighbor. It says meet the needs of your brothers and sisters, and it says to show mercy. You see, James 1.22 says don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. And in verse 26, or excuse me, 25, it says doers act, and because of that, they will be blessed. So in other words, in this instance, In in this context of James, faith looks a whole lot like a journey. It looks a whole lot like a process. It doesn't look a lot like a single point. It looks like a journey. So with that being said, let's go ahead and chew through James. Um, We'll go go a verse or two at a time, and I'll just stop and kind of expose it a little bit, and then we'll keep going. So James 2, uh, 14 says... What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So something to just quickly point out here is that there's a possession of faith, and then there's a possession of a fake faith. There's a possession of a claim to faith. So in other words, you've got James who's saying, hey, there's, a, there's faith, and then you've got Bartimaeus' faith who's like, this is phony. This, this is a claim but it doesn't actually do anything. In James's mind, a faith in Christ Jesus without works doesn't even exist. It doesn't even exist. It lacks the obedience-enabling power of a spiritual union with Jesus. That's what James is calling, basically calling Bartimaeus out here. So verse 15 and 16, let's dig into that. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Note here, go in peace. That's like this pious well-wish. Pious meaning just religious. That's this like, uh, I'll pray for you, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to meet your needs, even though I have the means to do as such. I'm not going to do anything about it. Living in Greenville, Texas, we certainly understand the I'll pray for you response, right? But Jason said something last week that really, uh, really caught me off guard. He said that about 10% of the people in this time, uh, in this time frame, in the time frame of James, was th- they were in desperate need of their material needs being met. Matter of fact, 10% of people were likely going to die because of starvation, exposure, whatever, anything like that. So what James is saying here is you basically have the means to meet somebody's needs and you don't, you're signing their death certificate. You're literally signing their death certificate. And oh, this isn't like some guy holding up a cardboard sign saying need help under interstate 30, this is, Keep in mind, a brother or sister. This would be somebody in our congregation coming for a need, and we say, go in peace. Let, like God will probably do that for you. I, I'll pray for you. I mean, we've all, we've all, we've all said that. I, I, I remember these times whenever my friends would call and say, oh, I just broke up with my girlfriend. You know, okay, I'll pray for you, dude. I'm so sorry. Man, my car broke down. Oh, did you get home? Yeah, I got home dude, I'll pray for you. That stinks. That's the worst. So in essence here, caring for poor and helpless and needy people is a crucial part of our faith. Meeting the needs of others is crucial. This, couldn't, this shouldn't come as a surprise because we've been studying Matthew and it's all over Matthew, helping those in need. Uh, verses 14 and 16 here, um, I thought this was Super interesting. In verse 14, it says, what good is it? And in verse 16, it says, uh, what good is that? The word good here is the Greek word ophelos. Ophelos doesn't just mean good. Ophelos means honor. It means profit. Really, it means honor. Remember what Jason was talking about last week? This is a honor-driven culture. This is an honor-driven culture. They really want to be esteemed by their colleagues. They want to be praised by their peers. And so in other words, what you say here, or, or what James is saying here is, you say seek glory and honor, but what is honorable about this? What is honorable about bypassing the needs of the people that need it? You say you want to seek honor. You say you want glory, but... All you're doing is just letting people walk by and saying you'll pray for them. So I thought that was super interesting, and it kind of brought me back. I don't know why I'm referencing Gladiator so much. I guess, I guess it was on a couple weeks ago or something. Um, but if you remember in, in Gladiator, the uh, Russell Crowe would always say strength and honor. That was kind of his thing. And I actually did some digging and realized that that's an actual legitimate phrase that Roman soldiers would say to each other. It was basically like a salute. They would say strength and honor. And so James, being the awesome person James is, is using that culture to basically drive a stake into Bartimaeus' heart and really into the heart of everybody that he's writing this to. So he's using that culture in such a way that I thought was was really cool. So now the easiest verse of all, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. Dead. It is useless. It is not viable. If your car breaks down, the first thing I would generally say was, Man, that car's dead to me, right? It is not viable. It's funny, I was kind of thinking about what this would mean, and uh, Greg and I were kind of discussing it as well. Um, and first of all, if anything I say today is really, really good, it comes from the Lord 100%. If anything I say is awful, it comes from Greg Fields' mouth. Um, nonetheless, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So, but I was thinking about what this means about faith being not viable, their faith being dead. And it would be like a skilled carpenter building a beautiful table and then putting it in a closet and we never use it, right? It would be awful. It would be like Wrigley making a gum that you couldn't even chew. It just doesn't make sense to me. I went over to a buddy of mine's uh, apartment in college and I walked in. I was like, hey man, the game's on. Do you mind if we turn it on? He said, my TV doesn't work. I said, well, your TV doesn't work. And when did it go out? Like three months ago. I was like, well, okay. You want me to like help you carry it to the garbage? What is it doing here? And he said, well, I was going to, but then I realized a room without a TV just looks weird. So I kept it here. I was Like, man, you, your TV doesn't do anything. It's, it's dumb. Anyway, nonetheless, we don't really keep like lawn mowers around that don't mow the lawn. We have a purpose for everything, right? And James is saying, your faith, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't have feet, it is not viable. It's useless. It's good for nothing. So, what I'm trying to get is, we need a faith that works. We need a faith that works, because without it, without a faith that works, it's ineffective. It's ineffective. It's all mental. The mere mental assent to Christian faith doesn't save anything. If your Christianity is, is basically based in your mind, it's really not good for anything. I read this commentary, uh, and this, this, this commentarist, I don't know what that's we call him. we'll call him a theologian, called it easy believism. He said, if all you do is believe in Christ in your mind, then that's an easy believism. It doesn't do anything. It's safe and easy, but it's missing. Remember, Keep in mind, this is a people that were highly persecuted. This is a people who were dispersed, who were um, driven out of their homes for various reasons or another, whether they're Christian or whether it's poverty or something like this. As a matter of fact, 15 years after this book being written, this very guy was martyred for his faith. A couple of verses after verse 17 that talks about Rahab. I'm sure Morris will talk about this next week. But Rahab very, very literally risked her life to love her neighbors that were camped out across the Jordan. Very, literally risked her life, her welfare, her home, everything, just to help out the needy. So, the faith that saves both James and Paul affirm. It embraces the gospel, and it acts accordingly. So, let's turn to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. So this is, uh, this is the very, very verses that people use that say Paul contradicts James and so forth. They use these verses, and, and actually this is probably one of the most memorized segment of verses ever. So I'm going to go ahead and read it for us. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast right you've got this hey faith is the grace and then you've got but your faith should works or your faith should work well, let's go ahead and read verse 10 real quick for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that you should walk it out you see ephesians 2 even and i encourage you go back and read ephesians 2 1 through 10 It is one of the most tidy pictures of the gospel ever. It is so tidy. It talks about us being dead in our trespasses. It talks about us being very children of wrath, how we were horrible. We couldn't please God whatsoever. And then the two best words in the Bible, but God, but God showed his love, gave us grace, justified us, saved us with his grace. And why did he save us? So that we could walk it out that he prepared, walk out the works that he prepared for us beforehand. See, James itself, James is not concerned with someone getting right with God. James is saying that, that Bartimaeus that he's arguing with didn't do enough to get there. He's not saying that at all. He is saying that a person hasn't even been saved because their faith is phony. The lack of works proves something about the very nature of their faith. It's not the other way around. Our early Reformed brothers and sisters might say it like this. We are saved by faith alone, but it doesn't stay alone. Our early Reformed brothers and sisters know that the gospel transforms your life 100%. You should never look exactly like you did before Christ as you do after Christ. There's nothing special about magic water, but when you come out of it, you are transformed. When you have that transformed heart, You can't be the same. You can't. And James is saying if you are the same, you might want to think about it. You might want to check yourself just a little bit. See, James isn't in this theological debate about works versus faith. We can't take that out of context at all. James is very practical. He is very realistic. He's very utilitarian. And I I like that about James. But faith is always in Christ. Your trust is never in your works. You will come up empty every day single time if you're trying to work to get there ask the Pharisees ask the Sadducees every single time you'll be empty so I mentioned application and we're going to spend a little bit of time in application Uh, it is going to be the cheesiest application on planet earth I can promise you that there we've all heard some really cheesy application points this is by far the cheesiest and it's going to be so good Y'all are going to go on this ride with me. It's going to be good. So uh, I married a beautiful woman who was in education for 10 years. So I thought I would take some of the stuff that she kind of taught me in education. One of the things she was, she was a literacy coach. uh, So I took some literary terms and and I thought we... You want to throw that slide up there? I thought we would do the five W's and the H of works. So who, what, when, where, why, and how. I told you it was cheesy. Just go along the ride with me. It's going to be a good time. And if you take notes, this is good. I put the notes up there so you can either disregard them, or take a picture of them, or whatever. But who do we work for? That's the first one. Who do we work for? This is a lob, right? This is completely obvious. It's Jesus, 100%. And you know, I I thought, man, that's so cheesy. I shouldn't say that. But but sometimes cheesy is like the truth. We work for Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1 of James says, "...as you hold faith in the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory." See, James is saying your faith is dead because you're not working. James is saying you don't have a boss. James is saying you don't even have a savior. Who are you working for? James is saying you should be working for Jesus. Matter of fact, both James and Paul and most of the letters written, they start off the letter, if you read, you know, James, flip back to James chapter one, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus. He's specifically saying that's who I work for. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus. So number one, who do you work for? Jesus. Number two, what is works doing? Well, God's not just gonna throw something in your way that doesn't have a purpose or a plan. So what is works doing? Doing good works matures your faith. Doing good works matures your faith. You see, a lot of times we think of, like we go back to the garden and we say, oh man, we just gotta work the ground we got to suffer. we got to long endure until we die. That's just the nature. Dadgummit, Adam and Eve, they did it for us. Well, you're not wrong in saying that, but you're also not right. Doing works, suffering does something for you. James says it, it creates steadfastness. It matures your faith. If you want to be healthy and you want to go work out or something like that, you have to stress your muscles. you got to work. So, Doing good works matures our faith. I told you it was cheesy, but I got the cheesy line in here. I said, let's break out the overalls and get to work, right? I told you it was cheesy. I should have thrown that line out. <laughs> so we got the, the who, Jesus, obviously. What does it do? Uh, doing good works matures your faith. When? When do we work? Again, another lob. We work now. Pray that we would be ready when the needs arise. Uh, Will Smith always said, and I love this verse, Will Smith always said, if you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. We should pray that we are ready when the need arises. This morning we prayed for VBS. We prayed for VES. So let's be a people who pray so much in what we believe that the prayer that we just spoke to the one true God who has all the power in the universe to do what we ask, let's believe this so much that we are at God's disposal to be the means that that prayer is answered. That's what work is, to be the means of the prayers that we just prayed. That's what work is. So where, where do we do these good works? We're not in Greenville, Texas by sheer happenstance. We're here by divine design. I don't know the most urgent spiritual need. I don't know the most urgent physical need. I might not know where the poor, the oppressed, and the orphan, the enslaved, and ultimately the lost are right now, but God does. God absolutely knows where those people are. Also, kind of reframe your mind that God loves those people so much that he put us in proximity to them. He put us here for a reason, to meet the needs of those people, both physically and spiritually. And if you don't know where where those needs are, ask Adam Bean with Fish Ministries. Ton of needy people there. Um, Ask Teresa Sadler with Rafa. Ton of needy people there. Um, ask Julie Prettyman of Poema, ton of needy people around Greenville, Texas. Maybe this, maybe this burden or this, this need for good works calls you overseas. I know a lot of our young people have gone on mission overseas. That's incredible. Go. We weren't called for an easy life whatsoever. So maybe, maybe you physically can't go overseas or, or maybe uh, your circumstances keep you here, but calls your heart overseas. Maybe you start raising money to send that to overseas missions. Maybe you become a fervent prayer warrior such that that you just pray and pray and pray for people like the Nagarachi people or for whatever people are burdened. Um, I didn't mention this, but uh, Morris mentioned this uh, at at first. Uh, James was known as James the Just. He was the half-brother of Jesus. He also had another name uh, that people called him by called Camel Knees. Camel Knees. I told you I was a mover. Uh, he, he said Camel Knees was his nickname. Um, the reason being was because he interceded so much for people that his knees started looking like knees of camels. So maybe if you pray so much for people overseas, we might start calling you Camel Knees. I hope not. That'd be weird. But. So why? Why do we work? We work because of the who. We work because of the who. Don't meet people's needs to win favor with God. Don't meet people's needs to escape judgment. Don't meet people's needs to, in order to be saved. If that's why, it won't last. It won't last. Our works never save us. It is by grace alone that we are saved through faith. It is only through Jesus that we are saved. He came to our aid when we had no hope. Romans 5 eight. God demonstrates his love for us. Then while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He came to our aid when we were a needy bunch. So meet the needs because of the favor God has shown in you and Jesus. It is not a faith plus works relationship. It is a works because of everything that Jesus has done for us relationship. We minister to those in need because he ministered to us in our great need. We love because he first loved. The need for Jesus does not overshadow works. It fuels it. The need for Jesus doesn't overshadow get overshadowed by your works. It fuels it. So number six, how? We're almost there, I promise. How? How do we do these good works? Well, first and foremost, don't get overwhelmed. Don't get overwhelmed. If you are burdened for for doing good works and you have not a penny to your name, if you have zero resources whatsoever, I would encourage you with this. God is the resource. God is the very resource. Let's go to like the most famous "Love Thy Neighbor" uh, passage of all, Matthew seven twelve. Matthew seven twelve. Everybody knows it, and you have it memorized probably. Matthew seven twelve says this: "So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them. For this is the law and uh, this is the law and the prophets. So it's it's the golden rule." Every, I mean, I, I grew up, do unto others as you would have do unto them. Everybody knows the golden rule. I love the ESV Bible, but it puts like a, a title above that. And so sometimes we forget that that title uh, actually wasn't there in the original um, passage. We also forget to read so in this. So, whatever you wish. So is a conjunctive adverb. So is just like therefore. And when there's a therefore, you figure out what the therefore is there for. You point back to something is what the word so does. So so points back to verses 7 through 11 of this. It says, ask, what, "'Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open for you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened.'" Or which, or which one of you, if his son asks for him for some bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask? So, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also for them. This is the law and the prophets. You see verses 7 through 11 fuels Verse 12, if you don't have any resources whatsoever, ask God. He is the resource. Almost there. If, also, if you're burdened and don't know how to do good works, remember what you're a part of. Look to the left, look to the right. We're a part of the church. We are a part of the church. You see, James and really the rest of the Bible doesn't call everyone to do everything. It's not, a part, it's not like that at all. It doesn't call everyone to do everything. It calls you to depend on your brothers and sisters. If your gift is prayer, pray like nobody's business. If your gift is working at L3 Harris, then work for the Lord. The, lift, the list goes on. If your gift is teaching, teach. God calls you to be faithful to your post, not necessarily do everything. We are called to rely on each other. That's called unity, as we rely on him. So we got this horizontal worship and then a vertical worship of him. So if you're sitting there thinking, dang, I'm just not doing enough. I've got all this stuff and I'm just not doing enough. Then you missed it. We missed it. I missed it whenever I first read over James. My immediate reaction is, man, I gotta get to work. But I missed it. Jesus did the heavy lifting for us. He first loved us. I'm not going to go to this passage, but Matthew 25 through 31, everybody remembers it. Truly I say to you, as you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. See, our attitude towards our brothers and sisters exposes our attitude to Jesus. The way we treat his people is evidenced in how we treat our king. Our attitude about our savior is evidenced in how we treat our brothers and sisters, specifically the poor. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, my life really doesn't affect, like my my life doesn't really point to my faith at all. My life doesn't reflect the gospel at all. Great, you need Jesus. That's like the whole purpose of this thing. You need Jesus. We all need Jesus every single second, every single hour. He is our fuel. We should all be a needy bunch needing him every single second. And if you don't know what that looks like, talk to somebody. Talk to me, talk to somebody and let's get that sorted out because we haven't all arrived. None of us have arrived, as a matter of fact. He is our motivation. We do it for him, not, because, not to become fireproof or to become saved or to climb some spiritual ladder or anything like that. We do it because he first loved us. The Bible is clear that our eternal state depends on faith in Jesus, not on any works that we might do even in his name, However, the Bible is also clear that those who have true faith in Jesus will show it with their works, particularly on behalf of those in need. So it's time to stop talking about ministry and time to start doing ministry. I have this this quote uh, that David Platt, I read read this out of a David Platt book and it wrecked me. So I thought we'd put it up on the screen here and I'll read it a couple times. For Jesus' sake, let gospel reality in your head fuel gospel fervency in your heart that leads to gospel urgency in your life. For Jesus' sake, let gospel reality in your head, fuel gospel fervency in your heart that leads to gospel urgency in your life. Let's pray. Father God, just thank you so much for being beautiful, God. Thank you for um, just making us such a needy group, God. I pray that we um, that we long, that we long to do uh, what you have prepared for us beforehand. God, I pray that we, um, God, we just beg for your resources, God, and that we use your resources well. God, we love you. We love you. We love you. It's in your holy, heavenly name. Amen. So the band came up here. We're going to go ahead and... uh